G'day everyone. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and we thank you that it is able to cut through all our pretenses and everything else and actually open up our hearts and we thank you now for the way this passage will do that for us tonight and we pray that we might let it do just that, that it might challenge us where we need to be challenged, that it might rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, that it might indeed encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But in all things we pray that we would listen carefully to your word and put it into practice tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there is a uh, more challenging passage of the Bible than this one, I don't know what it is. Uh, and to think I organised the preaching roster, I could have got one of the other guys to preach on this. But anyway, uh, I must have been half asleep. No, it's not hard to understand. It's actually one of the easiest passages in the Bible to understand, really. Uh, it's challenging because it does just what I prayed for just then, what God's word does to us. This passage exposes the reality of the human condition and leaves us with nowhere to hide. That's what it does. Uh, and so if there is a more challenging passage than this one, I don't know it. And it all flows out of the final verse of last week's passage. So just come back with me one verse from where we started reading in Matthew, back to Matthew 5 verse 20, where we finished off last week. And it says, Jesus speaking, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that such a challenging thing that Jesus said there? It's because for the people of his day, there was no one more righteous than the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees were the example of the people who took God's law totally seriously, who, who made sure that they followed it down to the smallest mark on the paper. And, and so it's like Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most righteous people you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it leaves us asking, who then can ever enter the kingdom of heaven? What hope is there for any of us? We have to remember that was Jesus' point. Jesus wanted us to ask that question. Uh, and in fact, Jesus was making two points that we saw last week. The first one was, if you remember, he wants us to say exactly. No one can earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. No one is righteous enough for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so the first thing Jesus wants for us to say, I I'm not righteous I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm not putting on a show. I'm not pretending that I'm good enough for you, God. That's the first thing Jesus wants from us. And instead, he wants us to then say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come and died for me and opened up the way into the kingdom of heaven by offering me forgiveness, by declaring me, by giving me the gift of your righteousness so that I can actually enter God's kingdom. So that is the first and greatest point we're meant to take away from the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to just keep saying it every week in the Sermon on the Mount so that you, you get it, even if you get nothing else that I say. And that is Jesus is making the point that we are not righteous, but he has opened up the way into the kingdom of heaven by trusting in him. But then Jesus wants to show us now what true righteousness looks like. See, see, what a righteousness that actually is better than the righteousness of the Pharisees, which was just a skin-deep false righteousness. He now wants to show us what a true righteousness looks like, not so that we can earn our way into the kingdom of heaven, but so that as forgiven sinners who want to live to please Jesus, we know how to do that. 
And, and as members of the kingdom of heaven, by grace, through faith, we can now know this is the sort of righteousness I want. This is what I want to characterize my life as a child of Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to know that the righteous life is very different to the sort of religious righteousness of the Pharisees. The righteousness that God desires for his people is a righteousness that impacts the heart and flows out of the heart rather than one where you just put it on for people to see and just keep the bare minimum of the rules of God. And so Jesus says, that's not the righteousness I want. I want you to have this heart deep righteousness. And now what he does is he goes for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us examples of what that looks like. And so we've got the first two of those examples tonight, and they are the most challenging of them all. Uh, we have to keep remembering. The aim is not so you say, oh, well, I must live like that in order to earn my way into the kingdom of heaven. It's to show us, in fact, our sinfulness, that we can't do it, so that we turn to Jesus for mercy, and then to show us this is now, in the light of that, how I should strive to live. So keep that in mind. Let's get into the two examples. We're starting at verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That is the most famous of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Sometimes I say to people, do you know the Ten Commandments? And they say, yes. And I say, can you tell them to me? And often they can only tell me one. And this is the one that everyone gets. Everyone says, well, I know thou shalt not kill. Everyone knows that murder is wrong. And the Pharisee then says, oh, good. One down, nine to go. I've kept it, haven't killed anyone. All tops, I'm righteous. What does Jesus say? Verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Who drove to church tonight? Who's feeling a bit guilty at this point? I was my first sermon this morning was preaching at the 8.30 congregation in the early morning one up at Bexley and as I'm driving up Queen Victoria Street this guy just comes flying across the roundabout in front of me and before I even think about what I'm saying I said you idiot I was alone in the car the kids weren't with me and the Pharisee in me said well at least I didn't say you fool or you moron <laughs> but there I am I'm on my way to preach on this passage and I'm calling someone an idiot if this does not, you know, we, we laugh about it, but what Jesus says is sobering, isn't it? And what's his point? His point is actions flow out of what is in your heart. And murder is just the end point. It's just the deed. It's what lies behind the deed that is the essence of our sin. And more than that, our lips will show the reality of our heart. And so Jesus says, it's not just the man who gets to the point of killing someone who's guilty of murder. Any person who harbours anger in their heart deserves God's judgment. Any person who speaks hatred or contempt with their lips is guilty before God and deserves judgment. But the Pharisee in us then wants to say, yeah, but aren't there times when it's right? to be angry aren't there times when, when I should say something to someone you know like when Jesus got angry at the money changes in the temple and went in and turned over all their tables and put a whip together and got them out of there you know that's righteous anger but right here Jesus does not want us debating with him where is the line that's his whole point 
You see, that's what Pharisees do. Pharisees say, okay, you've told me it's not just murder, so now just tell me where the line is now and I'll go right up to it. And then I'll just stay on the right side of the line. That's what a Pharisee does. He says, that's not what I want you to do. Jesus says, no, the point is, what is going on in your heart? That's the issue. And then what flows out of your mouth? So if you hold a grudge, you are sinning. And you deserve God's judgment. If I long for revenge, if I just can't wait to make that little comment that drags the other person down and lifts me up, then I am sinning. And in my heart, I've sinned against them and I've sinned against God and I deserve God's judgment just as much as the person who strikes out physically. Jesus wants us to feel the full weight of this. And why has he done that? Well, it goes back to those two responses, doesn't it? First of all, Jesus is stripping away our pharisaical self-righteousness. That's what he's doing. With this standard, who can honestly stand before God and say, I am righteous. I deserve a place in your kingdom, God. I mean, who has not hated in their heart? If you answer me, I haven't at that point. We've got a passage for you next week. It's about telling the truth. Who hasn't said, even if just under your breath, you idiot, you moron? I have. I sometimes do it in my sermons. I pray no one here has ever killed anyone, but who has not felt anger or contempt towards people? I do, sadly, all too often. And so once our self-righteousness is ripped away, and once we stop pretending that we're better than other people, the only option left for us is to turn to Jesus and find his forgiveness I deserve God's judgment so praise God that he sent his son to die for me but now now that we know Jesus and now that we know his forgiveness and now we are a part of his kingdom by grace now he says this is how you live for my kingdom don't don't just tick off boxes of righteousness now I, I want hearts that are changed I, I want you to go beyond just fulfilling the bare minimum of the law and I want you now to live your life for me. And so now Jesus expands on what that will look like and he gives us two examples to help us. So let's look from verse 23. He says, So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now Jesus was talking to Jews before the cross at this point, so he's using an Old Testament example. We don't have an altar, that's not an altar, that's a communion table, it's nothing special and you don't offer your gifts on the altar, we don't do that anymore. But it's not very hard to translate it to us in a New Testament situation, is it? What Jesus is saying, he's saying if you're on your way to church to hear a sermon on forgiveness... And then you realise there is someone I have wronged, pull over your car, even if it means you're late for church, it's one time you're allowed to be late for church, pull over your car, pull out your mobile phone and ring them up and say, I am sorry that I wronged you. See, it's that urgent. He says that's more important even than getting to church and doing your religious thing, if you like. Jesus is saying, don't you dare stand there belting out Jesus thank you or or Rock of Ages, or whatever it is we're singing, if there's someone five seats behind you who you have wronged, go and turn around, walk outside with them and sort it out. 
That's how urgent it is. And the second example there in verse 25, we won't look at it in detail, but it's making the same simple point. Deal with things quickly. Make it a priority to reconcile with people you have wronged, especially your Christian brothers and sisters. Jesus says it is far more urgent to do that, to go and forgive and deal with your brother and sister, than it is to do the religious thing. And in fact, the religious thing is just an act. It's just a sham if it doesn't impact your heart so that it then changes the way you treat other people. Now again, people want to say, yeah, 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 but, but there are limits to that. Surely there are some people I don't have to forgive. Surely there are some people who, who you know, bear a grudge against me and I haven't done anything wrong and I can't do anything to fix the situation. And yes, of course there are situations you can't fix. Although it is amazing how in our sinfulness we can justify ourselves and fool ourselves into believing that we're always the innocent party and that the other person is irrational. But I think Paul captures the essence of this in Romans 12:18. It's on your outline. When he says, if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. See what he's saying? You do what you can. You leave no stone unturned in seeking to fix things up with the other person. If, if they reject your offer of forgiveness or repentance, there's nothing you can do at that point. But you don't let it be with you that there is a breakdown in relationship between you and a person. Because there is no place for anger and contempt and grudge holding in citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Well, if that wasn't challenging and confronting enough, now Jesus turns to adultery. We're really dealing with the easy ones today. So verse 27, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now again, that's fairly obvious. That's the seventh commandment. I think... Jesus picks murder and adultery on purpose as his first two examples. And I think he does that because every Pharisee, and for that matter, most modern church-going Christians, are very happy to say, well, I haven't committed those sins. Whatever else I've done, I haven't murdered anyone and I haven't committed adultery. But again, Jesus wants to show us true righteousness is much more than not sleeping with another man's wife or with another woman's husband. Sadly, our society doesn't even uphold that anymore. So the idea that adultery is always wrong. Our society says, no, 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 there are actually times where you should go and commit adultery. And I'm amazed how regularly, it's always in that good weekend in the City Morning Herald, you know, in there they write articles about how sometimes if you're in a loveless marriage, you should go and commit adultery. And they try and normalise it. But where it's most insidious is in our movies. Now, people watch about, worry about watching pornography, but for me, it's usually the PG rom-coms that are the most evil things on earth. Because what they do is they always say, that woman in her loveless marriage, she should just go and get together with Brad Pitt. Or George, always, I only ever know Brad Pitt and George Clooney, I'm sorry I always use them. As a, I don't know any other actors, I don't watch enough movies. But... You get the, they, they actually buy, as you're watching the movie, you suddenly find, even though in your, you believe rationally in your mind adultery is wrong, you say, yeah, but that guy is such a bum and he's so nice and so she should actually leave him and go and get together with him. And you actually start going for the adulterer. That's what our movies and our TV shows do to us. They, they sort of convince us that actually it's not that bad. But here's the real reality of it, and what I find interesting, is when there is a real wife and kids who are devastated by a husband's adultery, or, or the opposite, 
then all that nonsense goes out the window and they say, that guy is a bum. Or that woman is, or, or whatever it is. And, and suddenly judgment kicks in. Our judgmental spirit kicks in at that point. When you see the tears and the devastation of a real broken family, everyone knows in their heart of hearts that adultery is a horrible and damaging evil. But for most of history, people didn't need to be told that. That's just a modern last 20 or 30 years thing. And so the self-righteous Pharisee through history can claim, I am righteous because I have not cheated on my wife. But again, Jesus says, let's talk about true righteousness. So look at verse 28. But he says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think that is the most challenging verse in the whole Bible. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To put it very bluntly, he's saying you may have kept your clothes on, but did she keep her clothes on in your mind? That's what he's saying. Lust equals adultery. Now again, the Pharisee wants to limit what Jesus says and say, well, you married people, you watch out then. Because I'm, I'm not married, so if I sleep with someone else who's not married, I'm not committing adultery. That's what Pharisees do, and that's ludicrous. Really, the Bible is very clear. Sex is a gift from God for within a marriage of one man and one woman for life. That's what it is. Don't be a Pharisee. Other people then want to draw a distinction between saying, well, it's all right to look as long as I don't look lustfully. Well, of course there's a difference. I need to look at you to talk to you. you know. And yes, we can be tempted. We can recognise that someone is attractive without falling into sin. There's a normal recognition of attraction between two people. But once you want to argue about where the line is, you've lost the battle. Once you want to try and justify what you're doing is all right, you've lost the battle. The second look the lingering look, the things that happen in our minds, we all know what looking lustfully is. And all too often we go even further. And frankly, it's much harder today than it was in Jesus' time. You can't catch a bus today without being forced to look lustfully. I'm amazed, why is it that they put women in underwear on bus shelters? What is it about that? It's like you've got to remove yourself from public transport to get away from this temptation or you're sitting there and a bus goes past with three semi-naked people on the side of it and that's just considered normal and no one complains about it it's not just the internet and movies and tv it's every billboard says look lustfully here i am look at me and the problem is not just that we look lustfully at those people and remember they are people made in the image of god they're not just images now the even bigger problem is that all that rubbish going through our eyes, into our brains, actually wires us to then treat other people as objects of lust. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I say this with a repentant heart. I'm not saying it standing in judgment over people. And I don't believe that I'm a person who especially struggles in this area. This is not my besetting sin, if you like. But is there a man or a woman here who can look me in the eye and say, I am not guilty of adultery? Is there a man or a woman who, here who can look me in the eye and say, according to how Jesus defines it here, I am not guilty of adultery? This is confronting, isn't it? But again, what is our response? 
It must be to drive us to our knees seeking God's forgiveness. That's the response Jesus wants. Our sinfulness should drive us to tearful repentance. And then it should drive us to wonderful thankfulness. Thankfulness that God says, I will wash clean a murderer. I will wash clean an adulterer. I will wash clean whatever is your sin. All of it. If you will just turn to Jesus and trust in him. Jesus died for my lustful heart and mind and he died for yours too. So trust in him and praise God. But now, now as sinners who've been forgiven, who've been washed clean, now we want to live as members of his kingdom, don't we? We want to say, that's what I used to be, but, but not anymore. And so Jesus makes it clear, this struggle will not go away, not until he returns. It's not like you become a Christian and suddenly lustful thoughts are not a struggle anymore. I pray God would do that for us, but that's not the normal experience. Not until Jesus returns and brings us into glory will this temptation go away. So until then, he says, you need to take drastic action to avoid falling into sin. So look at what Jesus says there in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. They never put those verses on posters at the Christian bookstores, do they? Now, some people have taken this literally. There have been Christians over the years who have gouged out their eyes, who have cut off their hands. Famously, in the third century, a guy called Origen uh, castrated himself. To say, I'm not going to battle with lust anymore. I'm just going to castrate myself and deal with the problem. And the really sad thing is, it didn't deal with the problem. Because he still had all those lustful thoughts in his mind. And that's the thing. Jesus is, is saying, do whatever it takes. You see, they, they missed Jesus' point. You can gouge out one eye, but you'll find plenty of things to look at with the other one. And then you can gouge out that eye, and you will have enough lustful thoughts left in your brain to keep you going for the rest of your life. It, Jesus is not saying... Go and gouge your eye. He's saying, do whatever you have to do to avoid temptation. Do not tolerate it in your life. Don't nibble at the edges. Don't flirt with it. Do whatever you have to do to deal with the temptation. So now, I'm going to make us a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm going to get very, very practical about what gouging our eyes out might look like in practice. That's what I'm going to do for the last little bit of the talk. And really, I just want to start the ball rolling with steps you might want to take if these are your struggles. These are not laws, but these are my thoughts on how we might cut off our hands. Firstly, don't, by the way, cut that part of my sermon and make it sound like I'm telling people to cut off their hands, you know, and quote me out of context. Anyway, <laughs> firstly, I want to talk about pornography. The statistics on pornography are the most awful reading that you can possibly find uh, i've seen studies that say how many men actually regularly struggle with the use of, of pornography and now increasingly women i've seen studies on the number of ordained ministers who struggle with the use of pornography and the numbers are horrible and here is the thing our society is trying to lie to us and say it is harmless that it's natural Pornography is not harmless. 
It is a horrible, destructive evil. It lives off the misery, generally, of vulnerable women. And sometimes now men as well. But more than that, it it destroys your soul. It, It is the most destructive thing there is. It creates massive issues and effectively destroys marriages both in the present and in the future, and destroys people's ability to actually have a normal, satisfying married relationship. We are about to have an epidemic in our society of people who are unable to have normal relationships, as pornography is normal for many people of your generation, sadly. It is the greatest evil that the generation above you has put on you, is creating the easy access to pornography that is now there through the internet and other things. Pornography is not just evil, it is soul-destroying. But in any case, it is adultery, and it's fornication of the mind, and so it sends people to hell. And so if this is your struggle, I want to say to you, gouge out your eye. If you look at pornography on this thing, if your parents did you the great disservice of giving you one of these then get a dumb phone. You don't actually need this. I survived without it for a long time. I still actually survive without the internet aspects of it because I can't make it work. But <laughs> the, and that is a great gift of God to me. You see, see what I'm saying? If this is your struggle, get rid of it. You don't need it. Get filters on your computers. Get, get Covenant Eyes. You heard of that program, Covenant Eyes, where you get a trusted friend and it gets sent through to them what you've been looking at on your computer. Find someone to keep you accountable if you struggle with looking at pornography. Keep your computers in public places. The idea that people would have an iPad iPad or, or a laptop in their bedroom is like saying, Satan, come in here and have your way with me. It's just stupid and ungodly. And parents, would you buy your 13-year-old a copy of Playboy or a copy of Penthouse... I don't even know if they exist anymore, those magazines. There's probably no use for them with these things. But would you buy a copy of something like that? You wouldn't. So why do parents buy 12-year-old kids one of these and say, here you go. Here's your own personal thing to look up whatever filth you want to find on this earth. You see, this is so simple. If your computer causes you to sin, smash it. If your smartphone causes you to sin, get a dumb phone. If we move on from lustful thoughts and pornography, what about the physical act of adultery? What steps do we need to take to make sure that we don't fall in that area? To to use Jesus' words again, how do we cut off our hands? There's just obvious things we should do to not even get into the danger of adultery. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak briefly to married people, but it might be relevant to you if one day you do get married. Uh, And then I'm going to talk to everyone, to whether you're married or not married. The obvious and key thing for married people to do is to work at their own marriage. That is the greatest remedy against adultery. Uh, Not take your marriage for granted. The the Bible has incredibly earthy advice for married couples. I'm always amazed when non-Christians get to those bits and go, is this the Bible? What's, What's going on here? Looks like Song of Songs and 1 Corinthians 7. And its point is, married couples should meet one another's physical needs. It is a sin to withhold sex from your marriage partner that's what the bible says so the idea is if people find fulfillment within their marriage they're not tempted to look outside 
their marriage. But it's not just about physical intimacy, it's about maintaining the emotional intimacy of a marriage. Most cases of adultery flow out of emotional intimacy, not out of fist, and they don't start with physical intimacy. I'll speak from a man's perspective, you can adjust it to the woman's. What often happens is that a man feels increasingly emotionally disconnected from his wife. And so she doesn't, he doesn't, well, he doesn't feel that she listens to him anymore. He doesn't feel that she affirms him anymore. He gets home and at home they, they just sit and watch TV and they don't talk to one another and all that sort of thing. And then he finds that other woman. And she might be at work or she might be at church even, sadly. And she listens to him like his wife used to listen to him. She affirms him like his wife used to affirm him. She makes him feel good. And they start by going to have a coffee together. And they're just talking Neither of them intends it, at least consciously, to commit adultery, but that's where it ends up. Because emotional intimacy leads to physical intimacy. And I want to say to you, if you find yourself walking down that path, Jesus is saying to you here, take drastic steps. Just, just don't meet with that person anymore. Move, move into a different office if, you, if that's where the issue is. Do what you've got to do. Run for help. Stop seeing them, but do what you have to do. Now, what about those who aren't married, whether never married or divorced? Well, the Bible's golden rule on dating is very, very simple. Uh, If you're not married to someone, they are your brother or your sister. And so if you think it would be disgusting to do what you're doing with them or think about what you're doing with them, if they were your brother or sister, it is disgusting what you're doing with them or what you're thinking of doing with them. You see, we should not entertain thoughts of doing things with our brothers and sisters that are not appropriate. If you're in a dating relationship, I want to say to you, it is one of the most dangerous times of your life, if you're in a dating relationship. The Bible actually has nothing at all to say about dating relationships. It has everything to say about them, as I'll say in a second, but it has nothing to say specifically about dating relationships because that category didn't exist in the Bible. The idea that there would be two people who, to the exclusion of others, are bound together but not married is just foreign to the Bible. So if you're going out with someone, the idea is, well, you're looking to see whether you're going to marry that person. That's how the Bible looks at it. And so if, if you can't see yourself marrying that person anytime soon, then it sort of would say to you, well, why are you in an exclusive relationship with them. But if you ignore my advice on that level, uh, and I I should say I'm not being silly, I'm just being realistic. When people have long-term exclusive relationships in our modern society that go on for years and years, they will be sexual. If if you think there are these couples who have been going out for five years and they have not fallen, they're lying to you. They're being Pharisees. It just, it's not true. It doesn't happen. And so I'm not being silly about it. If you're not going to get married, I say to you, well, why are you going out? But if you are going out, either because you're thinking maybe we'll get married or you're disagreeing with my advice, which is just wisdom. I'm not claiming it's the word of God. For those in relationships, I want to say to you, be serious about godliness. That's what Jesus is saying to you here. Be serious about godliness. Don't be naive. If you put yourself in a position where you are alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, what what do you think is going to happen? You know, don't go on holidays together. I'm amazed how many 
times I, I've heard over the last few years, 20 years ago, no one would have ever thought that a couple going out would go on a holiday together. But now people go, well, my married friends are, so I want to go on a holiday. Don't put yourself in that position. You're asking for trouble. Don't stay at their house, even in separate rooms. Don't sit in cars until the early hours of the morning. I can tell you it's not conversation that he's interested in. That's not why he's hanging around. And don't even get me started on the stupidity of going out with someone who does not share your faith, where only one of you is even fighting the fight. That's just saying, hey, devil, come and have your way with me. When my kids were smaller, I used to take them down to the Mill Street Reserve down there. You know the Mill Street Reserve? And it's got great play equipment. And we'd go down there. Can you imagine if I took them down there and I said, look at all those swing sets, guys. Aren't they great? Look at all those other kids playing on them. Aren't they tops? Look at those monkey bars over there. Aren't they great? Don't. You're not allowed to play on them. And in fact, I want you to stand here five metres away from them and just stare at them, but you're not allowed to play on them. You would report me to docs or something, wouldn't you? You'd say, that's, that's abusive. To take them there and say, there is, there is this thing that you're desiring. It's right there. I'm, I'm going to rub your face in it, but you can't have it. Well, that is often what Christians do to one another in the area of sexual sin and temptation. They, they create all the environment for it to happen and then wonder why they fall. See, it's one thing to struggle with sin, but to purposely and stupidly put yourself and someone else who you claim to love into a position of temptation, that is more than foolishness. It's called intentional sin. When a boyfriend and a girlfriend sleep together at 10.30 at night, the sin didn't happen at 10.29. See, when did it start, especially in his mind? It started at 10.30 that morning when he overheard his parents say, we're going out tonight. And when he then rang up his girlfriend and said, why don't you come over tonight, my parents are going out and we'll just watch a movie. That's when the sin started. That's when the decision was made. Jesus said, gouge out your eye. Do what you have to do, whatever it takes to flee from temptation. Well, this passage will have, well, will have, produce guiltiness Uh, if it hasn't you're superhuman or you haven't been listening Uh, either over things in the past or things in the present some of us will have fallen physically others of us all of us will have fallen mentally uh, in our hearts and minds but it's what we do with that that's the key see if our guilt leads us to sorrow and repentance and trust in Jesus then the wonder of the gospel is that we are washed clean And we are forgiven for our sin. See, even the murderer can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Even the adulterer can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That is the point. Jesus wants us to turn to him and find forgiveness. That's the response. If you are feeling guilty because of things that have happened in your past or things that are happening now in your life, I want you to say, I want to repent and take a hold of that forgiveness Jesus has given me. That's the response. But then now, as repentant and forgiven sinners, Jesus says, now let's fight the fight. Let's just not follow the ways of the world. Let's fight the fight. Repentance in these areas is not easy. We will continue to struggle. But the mark of true repentance is that we do struggle. It's that our sin does grieve us. 
and that we are willing to take drastic action to avoid it. Listen to Jesus' words again. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel. That even though we are sinners, even though in our hearts we are guilty of hatred and lust and so many other things, we thank you that you still loved us enough to send your son to die in our place so that we might know the wonder of forgiveness. We thank you that you have washed us clean. But now as forgiven sinners, as people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, we pray that you will help us to treat sin seriously. Help us not to flirt with it. Help us, help us not to entertain it. And whether it's the sin of anger that we struggle with or the sin of lust, we pray that you will help us to flee from it, to take the drastic steps we need to take to avoid falling. And we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to withstand against the temptations of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.